2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. Last month, I was lucky enough to attend the annual conference of the Association for Asian Studies, AAS, in Boston, which I try to get to most years. This was actually my first time back since the pandemic. Uh, You can imagine that for somebody like me, who is very interested in a huge range of of topics in Asian studies, and specifically Chinese studies, uh, it was a a target-rich environment. Now, some years that I've gone, I have recorded shows there. Uh, but this time, I actually just brought a portable recorder and a microphone and grabbed various scholars, uh, some of whom I had already known, uh, some of whom I had just met uh, or had been introduced to me or only knew through Twitter, and, and asked them to introduce themselves and to talk briefly about their work. I also asked them to do Seneca-style recommendations. So if you listen to the what, 15 or so capsule interviews that follow, it will give you a real sense of the just amazing breadth of topics that academics these days are working on it was for me really inspiring i talked to everyone from ma students to you know phd candidates to tenured professors and and many of the people that you will hear from will be coming back to do full episodes so if there's somebody who you found particularly interesting Drop me an email at, at Kaiser at the dot com or Seneca at the dot com, and I will try to, you know, move that person up in the queue. I cleaned up the sound a little where possible, but uh, most of these were done in the lobby of the Sheraton or just in the hall of the conference center. And so, you know, you're not always going to hear the questions I was asking um, where I did decide to jump in. Anyway. Enjoy this and, you know, let me know what individual particularly impressed you or, or what research area sparked your interest. Enjoy.
3: My name is Christian Schukopf,er and I'm a full professor for China Studies, Contemporary China Studies at the University of Trier. And I'm also a senior research associate with Merix, the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin, Germany. My recent project is about the Chinese diaspora, specifically the public influencers or public intellectuals, which are uh, speaking out on social media, on U.S. social media, Twitter or YouTube, trying both to attract and impact Chinese audiences and also um, U.S. audiences, Western audiences. Um, and it's a really fascinating group. And I think it's a really an understudy group because I think we could learn So much from them, from their perspectives, how they look at China, also how they look at the US or Europe, how they interpret global events. Because I think, and of course there are different types, there are people, for example, who provide mainly information that they get from their contacts in China, either in Chinese or in English. But there are also people who kind of provide different um, interpretative frameworks, like narratives, offering both to Chinese and English audiences to really make sense of all this information we get from China. Because I think... It's oftentimes not a lack of information we do have, but really a lack of how to make sense and interpret conflicting um, informations. And I, I think those Chinese public influences, because of their knowledge, they can also oftentimes make really much more sense than us, as or at least me, as a foreign researcher, although being embedded, hopefully, enough into the Chinese context. But they can make sense of the ambiguity of China, right? And they're also willing To not kind of resolve everything, saying it has to be this or that, but to really accept. And I think that's also something I I learned from them a lot, that China is complex, it's confusing, it's contradicting. But um, this is also the dynamics and the beauty, especially of the Chinese society. In general, I do believe it's important to study them and also um, counterparts in China. Some of those Twitter public influences are also based, and China is even more courageous. Uh, it's also because we tend to focus so much on uh, Xi Jinping and the CCP, and that also brings us oftentimes into this very antagonistic, focused on national security uh, or technological competition kind of framework, which is, of course, important, and we have to pay attention to that. But China is so much more. It's beyond the CCP We should engage uh, with the people and we really should use their narratives and their understanding when we try to make sense of what's going on in China. So, I mean, this is a highly fragmented group. There are different kinds of constituencies, different professional backgrounds. One of the line that kind of has uh, kind of broke up into kind of divided the community actually is their position on Trump and conservative values and identity politics and uh, there is, and I'm not in position to say how much, but there is a large population within those political influences who are supportive of Trump. And for various reasons and people, Ian Johnston, uh, Tung Biao and others have written about that is because um, some of them think the more from the more old generation democracy activists, they believe Trump can bring down the CCP. He's so tough on China. That's why we like him. Others rather think of uh, because of they um, they want to keep their own status they feel they worked hard to achieve what they have and so they very much buy into this anti new immigrant and uh, also in a very oftentimes sadly racist uh, way you know kind of looking down on other more struggling people and don't acknowledge that they don't have maybe the same opportunities because of their people of color or their educational background And there's also uh, another group which really struggle with this whole issue of identity politics and feminism and come from a very different value background. And for them, it's really hard to accept what, for example, the Democrats or like more liberal people offer. And that's one of their main reasons why they would support Trump.
2: Fantastic. Do you have a good book recommendation for us?
3: Well, I have a a really good recommendation for an essay by Tang Biao, who wrote on uh, those uh, people and tried to understand. I think it's called "Why Pro Democracy" or "Why Pro Democracy uh, Chinese Intellectuals Support Trump." So it's really unpacking that very well. And in addition, I would recommend um, Han Rongbing's work on digital society, and also Yang Guobin's work on all what's going on in terms of digital China younger Chinese and the various kinds of notions we see and how the way they express themselves online.
4: Uh, my name is Leb Nachman. I am a uh, professor at National Zhengzhou University in Taipei, Taiwan. Uh, two things that I'm working on. Uh, I have two book projects coming out in the next year. The first is a uh, introduction to Taiwanese politics for people who want to learn about Taiwanese politics that I'm co-writing with Jonathan Sullivan from uh, University of Nottingham in the UK. Uh, the other book is a solo-authored book that's based off my dissertation work on the relationship between social movements and political parties in Taiwan, uh, and how Taiwan as a contested state can actually teach a lot to the world of political science uh, because of the way that politics are defined differently in Taiwan, because it's based off questions of territorial integrity and national identity, that a lot of our assumptions around why social movements mobilize and political party form uh, are a little different in Taiwan. Uh, so those are, my, those are my big kind of academic projects Um, One book that uh, I really love that's out right now is by uh, Ian Rowan called uh, One China, Many Taiwans. I want to make sure I get that name right. Uh, It's on uh, tourism, Chinese tourism to Taiwan. Fantastic read. Uh, Ian actually went with Chinese tour groups from Shanghai to Taiwan uh, and got to experience Taiwan through the eyes of Chinese tour groups. Fantastic book, whether or not you're a Taiwan or China scholar. Uh, and then uh, one underrated place in Taiwan, I have a lot of love for the city of Taichung. Uh, it is a place that most people drive through on their way down south to Tainan. But I insist that Taichung actually has uh, not just a lot of very cool history for Taiwan, but some of the best night market food. I highly recommend uh Jie or Fangjia, Jia Ye if you're ever down there.
2: Fantastic. Thanks.
5: So my name is Lin Jiang, and I now work at University of uh, New Hampshire in the Department of uh, Communication uh, so my study focus on critical innovation studies, information labor, mainly focusing on China, but also from a kind of transnational perspective. So I have a, a book just came out, actually, from the Columbia University Press, which is called The Labor of Innovation, Entrepreneurship uh, in the New Chinese economy, where I look at what I call entrepreneurial labor in China. Um, Mostly post-2008 China, but actually situate it historically. Uh, So I looked at uh, a few uh, different sites uh, in uh, urban China, focusing on Zhongguancun, where I did a lot of um, ethnography in some of the emerging co-working spaces. One is uh, the Garage Cafe and some of the more state-owned, like Tsinghua, own uh, affiliated um, spaces, and uh, the other side, I looked at Taobao villages in uh, Shandong, in actually my hometown, <laughs> um, and which is a handicraft uh, making village, and used to be mostly um, serving export purposes. And, and after 2008, they repurposed la- that to kind of selling to online to a kind of growing. Uh, middle-class Chinese consumers, right? So, and the other is a kind of more transnational aspect of this um, entrepreneurial labor, where I looked at actually uh, women uh, who are kind of uh, moving back and forth between China and, um, you know, Japan, Korea, United States, and other parts of the Western world, reselling all kinds of luxury products and others through social media mainly. I try to provide a kind of comprehensive picture of how you know China's reinvented itself. Uh, that's why it's called reinvention after 2008. And uh, through uh, technology, through promoting entrepreneurship, and the kind of mixed impacts actually it has on uh, the, um, the different types of entrepreneurs, whether it's more the more elite ones or more more grassroots ones in rural China or working class background, uh, are you know how their lives are impacted by this grand transformation in uh, innovation and um policy
2: well just earlier this week i got a copy of your book and i'm really looking forward to reading it and uh, thank you for that and we'll have you on the show to talk about it but um for now you've been a cynical listener for a long time right and and maybe you could give me a sense of what it is you think that we aren't covering enough that maybe topics that you would like to see us do more of and then give us some recommendations
5: cool yeah so i've been really a long time fan of cynical. And I really uh, liked um, sort of uh, the information that I received from SINICAN about, um, you know, as China relations and also uh, even politics, a lot of really uh, important insight that I couldn't actually get elsewhere, right? So I really appreciate that. So um, in in terms of expectation, I hope SINICAN could also focus more about kind of China from the ground up especially um, in, you know, regions are often less covered, like uh, the countryside um, and and people's lives there and how that is actually, they're impacted by all these kind of um, grand changes that we're going through. So that's something that I would like to see more and <laughs> listen to more on City Cup.
2: Well, I, I totally take that to heart. And I think now that travel is going to be possible again, as at least, you know, when plane ticket prices come down we'll be able to do more of that and i'll be looking for more people who work on issues like that uh, i would love to do that i think that's something that i'm I'm committed to trying to do so thanks so much okay how about a recommendation and give me one that is a, a book recommendation from something in the field of china studies and another one that's more personal
5: right cool right so actually yeah i have been reading this one or- so I would recommend in my field, Victor Sell from Harvard University. His uh, new book, um, Carbon Technocracy, right? Which I think is a really great book. It had, you know, touched on so many important topics our times: time, uh, energy, uh, tra- 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 trying to reduce carbon emission, and also it tra- has a transnational scope, right? So uh, covers uh, and uh, stays uh, in, in nature. Japan, Japanese days and Chinese date and and he's also trying to bring the state back into the conversation which I think is very important to really demystify state in a way. Yeah, so outside of my field I have another recommendation um, by uh Gary Gerstow I think is uh he's a historian uh American uh, of um Uh, U.S. history, and and the title of the book is American Crucible, Race and Nation in the 21st Century, I think it's really illuminating in helping me understand, you know, a lot of the transformations at this moment. He actually traced the formation of uh, American racial regime uh, from the um, Roosevelt, um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's era, and sort of a different generation's immigration coming in, and how that kind of um, co-evolved with government policies and to you know shape how we understand uh, race, how people get along in this nation, uh, which I think really helped me to understand some of the kind of transformations we're going through at this moment. Um, so I would highly recommend
6: that history book.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. That was Lin Jong from the University of New Hampshire.
6: My name is Mara Dykstra. I'm currently an assistant professor at the California Institute of Technology. And in the fall of 2023, I will be moving to Yale. My recently published book is called Uncertainty in the Empire of Routine, the Administrative Revolution of the 18th century Qing state. It is about how the Qing dynasty unexpectedly manufactured its own information crisis over the course of a hundred years simply by attempting to better monitor its own bureaucracy. And step by step, author by author, character by character, in this unorchestrated and yet orchestral climax, they created so many rules about how to report themselves and to measure themselves on their own performance, that at the moment they became more aware than any other dynasty of what they were up to, they became more certain that they were completely unsure of what was going on. And so it's a story of how the more information you get, sometimes the less you feel like you know or the way that you believe you know them, is not the way that you always imagined you knew them. So I talk a lot about the epistemological foundations of the state and the relationship between the archive, which is how we gather information, and the operations of the state itself. And so there's also a little bit of thought about the ways that we access and think about information in the PRC and how maybe they're not actually that new to history. Uh, One of the books that I'm really interested in reading right now is uh, an Oxford history on registration, which Richard von Glan contributed a beautiful uh, piece about registration in imperial China to, because I'm currently working on a project about the Ming administration of civil spaces. That's all about how you count people. And that's something that I've been very interested in. Because I've just moved to Connecticut, my new hobby is walking in the woods. So I invite you to go outside and take a walk somewhere. Have a good day.
2: Thank you. Hey, just one quick question for you. Um, I remember the book that was, that must belong to my grandfather at some point, but it was on our shelves growing up, and I, I, it's come with me, but I've never actually read it. It's something like called communication, imperial communication in Dai In is it's like from the sixties or the seventies. Do you know this book?
6: You could be talking about Silas Wu's communication and control, or t- <laughs> Silas Wu. Communication and control is one of the things that I think about the most, and Silas Wu and later Beatrice Bartlett, who was at Yale. Um, write about the relationship between information and autocracy in China. And my work is an attempt to add another layer of complication because we have this story that's not unlike the stories that we talk about in um, autocratic governments today, that the desire for information or the surveillance state leads to more forms of powerful control. But there's always a, a little bit of an unexpected twist when states start to learn about themselves and their subjects. So I'm kind of playing with a more modern take on this story.
2: It sounds a little bit like James Scott, too. James C. Scott, right?
6: I have lots of things to say about James Scott, most of which are that um, the story he tells about high modernity is beautiful and compelling, and yet maybe not the most fitting one for the era in which we currently live, when our certainties about information and its value have been clouded with interesting and nuanced considerations about how we get information and how the questions that we ask influence the things that we think we know. And maybe we shouldn't be as sure as we had always thought we would be in the high modern context that Scott so brilliantly conveys.
7: That's amazing.
2: Thank you so much, Wara.
7: Okay. um, So I'm Jonathan Elkobi, E-L-K-O-B-I. I'm from UCSD. I'm a master's student for Chinese economics and political affairs. And I'm currently working on mainly like Chinese elite politics and trying to understand from speeches what are their own original ideas and what are propaganda and I try to differentiate that using um, computational tools. So, like I look at, for example, Xi's um, speeches and the state official statement, and I try to see when he just cop- like his writer just copy paste from a propaganda and when he promotes a new idea that wasn't introduced before. And then I can say, oh, this is a new idea that he decided to promote, not using like propaganda tools or general channels. He uses his speeches to create and promote those new ideas. So I mainly use like large language models. And I look at the sentence level, like each sentence and try to calculate the similarity. You can like really, really, create an index of what is the ori- originality of each sentence and in the same time you can use it to understand the dominance of she's sentences of his speeches like how many times afterward he's been copied but using these large language models it's not have to be like directly copy paste word to word it could be like the general idea that he uses in his sentence if it appeared before or not by using the most, by calculating what was the most similar sentence before that in the official statements. Have you
2: had any findings pop out at you yet?
7: I don't think anything special, but mainly like it can validate a lot of the thoughts that scholars currently have because a lot of people have claimed that she is really dominates the system and he had his original ideas, but sometimes it feel like some people talks about specific policy issues and they quote she etc etc. But we're not sure if it's really she's fought or some think tank or just like some um, another state department have promoted this idea and he just like recited through his speech. So I think just validating that, for example, core technologies is something that he really promotes and he really dictates the state what to do in that. It's something important. Yes,
2: great. Can you recommend a book, uh something that people you listen to Seneca might be interested in reading?
7: I'm I'm originally from Israel, so there is like a round cooperation um study about China's economic statecraft in Israel and their relation to each other. That really helped me to understand like how my original country is connected to the whole BRI and if it's or if it's not just a buzzword. So I really like um, jazz, and there is this ensemble, they're like big or- orchestra, they're doing like a lot of fusions they called Snarky Puppy, have you heard about them? Yes, yeah, so they just um, launched a new album a few months ago and it's really great. Thanks so much, Jonathan thanks for taking the time. So I'm uh, Seiji Shirane, I'm a
8: uh, assistant professor of history at City College of New York. Um, I'm a Japan specialist, but I spent several years in China With language and fieldwork in my uh, book, Imperial Gateway, Colonial Taiwan and Japan's Expansion in South China, Southeast Asia, 1895 to 1945, just came out with Cornell University Press Open Access for free download. It looks at the role of colonial Taiwan and Taiwanese subjects uh, as actors in Japanese expansion into South China, Southeast Asia. I came into the field wanting to look at Sino-Japanese relations with something French besides Manchuria, Shanghai, the conventional sort of expansion from the north. Uh, Once Japan took over Taiwan in 1895, they really saw it as a stepping stone to further expansion into the three port cities of South China, Southeast Asia, looking at the Hokkien and Taiwanese uh, Han Han ethnic connections with South China, Southeast Asia. And so it's looking at uh, Taiwan really as an intermediary between these three regions. But in terms of any book recommendations, um, there's, you know, what we would call a third or fourth generation of scholars of Japanese empire that really look at Japanese, Korean, Mongolian, Chinese languages, not just from the Japanese perspective, but trying to get, you know, multi-regional, multi-ethnic uh, uh, perspectives together. I've um uh, colleague Japan, uh, Paul Kraman coming out with Japan's oceanic borderlands, looking at Japan's environmental expansion and history across the Pacific. Others, Jun Uchida uh, looking at, again, Japanese expansion and the relation between Japanese-American history, Japanese-Canadian history to the empire. Uh, so although I'm a Japan specialist, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the podcast and looking at ways that, uh, you know, China and Japan, these historical relations can be studied in new ways, uh, my second book project is going to look at post-1949 uh, PRC Japan relations in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the Cold War when they didn't have diplomatic relations. But what are the you know intellectuals, officials, ex-soldiers, uh, you know tourists and and travelers? What what kind of um, civilian and people's diplomacy occurred between the two? Uh, a, a personal recommendation, um, you know, I would say that uh, this is not new. Um, material, but uh, in my classes on Japanese-Chinese relations and colonial Taiwan, I'll show some movies. So Sidik uh, Bale for uh, the anti-Japanese indigenous uh, uh, rebellion 1930 is, I think, an excellent film to look at both Taiwanese and Japanese perspectives. Uh, I also sh- show Lust Caution uh, for my Japanese-Chinese relations class on issues of collaboration resistance. So uh, those are not new films, but I would say two recommendations that I go to often.
2: Thanks so much, Seiji. That was fantastic.
9: I'm Zhu Qian. I'm assistant professor of history uh, in Liu Kunshan University. And my specialty is uh, on the 20th century international history of China. And my book project, I have two book projects. The first one is, um, is called Staging the People, uh, the Chinese, uh, Dajun Politics and the Culture and Leftism in China from 1919 to 1936. Uh, my second book project, which is uh, the introduction just published by the Positions Asian Critique, special issue on the uh, urban village is uh, about the new village movement in China uh, from 1919 to 1936. So I'm looking into how this anarchist tradition turned into the social activism and also state project in the 1930s. So I don't want to say that they are anarchists as what you think anarchists should look like. they basically um, socialist left uh, or um, in a way that they really focus on the question of uh, the majorities of the suppressed. And, and so in that way that for example, when they they, they always use the concept of Dao um the the message. but I don't want to use zhong in my book. I don't want to use the message in my book. I use da Zhong because this is exactly how they understand. They understand the majority of the suppressed. That's what Da zhong really mean for them. And they wanted to differentiate their political positions from, the other concepts of the people, such as the Sanminzhu Yi, the Three People's uh, Principles, uh, is pretty much a state concept, and in terms of the state and society's relationship, and also they differentiate themselves from the party politics, uh, the Qunzhong, uh, which is the party, the um, the Qunzhong, the masses following up the party's uh, directi- directives. So their politics and their cultural practices. Uh, really based upon this principle of equality, for example, one um, educator called Tao Xingzhi, he he proposed this theory called um, the life education, and he built this Xiao Zhuang School at the suburb of Nanjing. Basically, everyone live together and work together and study together, and that kind of equalized life. Create new values uh, for as as the seeds of to born a new Chinese society from the grassroots from the bottom up, not from the top down. That's their view of what the Chinese society should look like and the Chinese nation after the liberation should look like. Um, so, the book recommendation. So I'm I'm so much influenced by. Um, the books of uh, intellectual histories of twentieth-century China. So I would recommend Rebecca Kao's book, uh, "Staging the World: um, The uh, Nationalism in Twentieth-Century China," and um, the book is is uh, dealing with how nationalism and the creation of uh, the creation of a Chinese nation since the late nineteenth century throughout down to and and um, the uh, Chinese revolutionaries, and even the overseas Chinese anarchists, they work together. But they, they eventually look into this question of uh, nationalism, but their nationalism was perceived as the inflation of uh, internationalism in a way that they see this as a global anti, for example, global anti-colonial community, and China just one of the member aligned with the other colonialized nations. So to some extent, that's my work really influenced by that kind of um, uh, Chinese revolutionary review of um, the 20th century lookup.
2: So what about a recommendation that just that has nothing to do with your work? It's something you just enjoy personally.
9: Yes, I enjoy a movie uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm teaching a course on the Chinese history, modern history, but I use movies. So students will watch two movies, uh, and I chose those two movies. Um, I chose choose those 14 movies as my favorite. And among all of my favorites, there's one um, I wanted to recommend to all of you. Uh, actually, two, could be two. Yes, one is uh, is Ho uh, Xiaoxian's The City of Sadness. That movie is so rich and so deep that even today, after I watched it so many times, probably over 50 times right now, uh I still cannot completely understand, but uh i every time i that movie inspired me to think about humanity and humanism and um to survive and also this relationship of course regional relationship and also relationship between uh different social groups uh the second one is uh Zranko's Touch of Sin Ken true um that movie I think. Is could we can call it a social realistic film, which is kind of um, the benchmark sort of for the sixth generation of Chinese filmmakers. Um, I would say that he's that's his peak <laughs> right now. I don't know. No, <laughs> I still like his early works. So I would like if you wanted to enjoy, if you wanted the entertainment films, maybe I'm, I'm not. <laughs> Good person to talk to. I like to watch movies that make me think and linger with me.
10: Okay, Fabio Lanza, uh, Modern Chinese History, University of Arizona in Tucson. I'm currently working, I'm finishing hopefully a manuscript uh, whose tentative title is Bridge to Heaven, and uh, she's about the urban commune movement in the capital city of Beijing during the Grey Leaf Forward. So urban collectivization: getting women out of the house and into factories created in the neighborhoods of Beijing, and why uh, it failed, how it failed, and uh, why is it still interesting as an economic and project and a, a social-economic project and a project of women's liberation. So that's the book um, that I'm working on. It deals with issues of the socialist economy, gender, uh, feminism and things like that so recommendation for a book to read now book i last read uh about uh the prc i would recommend people to read sarah Mellor Rodriguez's book about the history of abortion and birth control from the republican period to the prc period it is incredibly revealing in many ways and a strange recommendation of something that nobody uh we'll think about, it. I will give you a hopefully a new translation is coming out soon of a classic of Marxist feminists, uh, Italian Marxist feminists um, by Leopoldo Fortunati, The Arcane of Reproduction, which is about domestic work and prostitution and uh, socialism. That's fantastic. Perfect. Hi. My
11: name is Catherine Tsai. I am a PhD candidate at Harvard University in the program of History and East Asian Languages. Um, I study the history of Taiwanese and Okinawan migration to the Yayama Islands from the Japanese colonial to the American occupation periods. Um, My research looks at uh, the roles that Taiwanese immigrants as well as Okinawan uh, migrants from the Okinawan mainland play in the development of the Yayama Islands, specifically in the field of uh, tropical agriculture. That is my dissertation topic. So for the Taiwanese case I look at sort of the Taiwanese who are from central and southern Taiwan who go to Ishigaki in the 1930s and then I look at the roles that they play in the post-war development of Ishigaki's pineapple industry Um, I also look at the Okinawans who uh, had lived and worked in Taiwan during the Japanese colonial period and how they brought their knowledge of tropical agriculture back to Okinawa uh, to also um, foster the development of the pineapple industry Um, In terms of books that I think are important in the field, um, one in particular that comes to mind is Hiroko Matsuda's The Liminality of the Japanese Empire, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press, I think in 2019. And her book talks about Okinawans who migrate to Taiwan uh, during the Japanese colonial period from 1895 to 1945. Um, And I think her book is important because it demonstrates the role that Taiwan played in fostering both Okinawan identity, but also like shape their knowledge about sort of the oceanic borders between uh, southern Okinawa and Taiwan. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Hi. So I'm Lena Kaufman. I'm um, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Zurich. And I'm also currently a visiting scholar at the University of Konstanz. And so one in Germany and one in Switzerland. And I'm trained as a china scholar and also a social anthropologist i studied in berlin in rome and in shanghai and uh, i did my phd in zurich so i've been working on rural urban migration and looking in particular at the rural side of migration because normally like people who study migration they always look into the places of arrival and don't always look at what's actually happening at uh, those that stay behind so i looked at at rice fields and at what people do when people are lacking at home to cultivate the fields, but like these fields still need constant cultivation, otherwise they lose their soil quality and value, and people like migrants, they have highly precarious situations in in the city, so they need these fields as a safety net back home. So I've been looking at the strategies of rural urban households like translocal households and how they deal with these conflicting pressures of looking um yeah at yeah looking at that fields and yeah i have published a, a book about this with um, amsterdam university press that can be that is open access also it can be downloaded online and the title is rural urban migration and agro technological transformation in post-reformed China. So quite a long title. <laughs> um, and in this book, I also looked at the role of agricultural technology in migration, because this has actually also been really overlooked that, I mean, people look at the hukou system and like the structural things that push people to migrate. But what has really been overlooked is that the role of labor-saving technologies, that this has also set free, like millions of people from their land and, and push people to migrate. So I look at this um, intersection. But then currently I'm also working on a very different project that is um, about digital infrastructures. And so I look at the Chinese digital Silk road to Switzerland and how it has been unfolding historically and and also currently um, in Switzerland. And yeah, so there is like a, a lot going on here in this field, like with company openings and Switzerland of, yeah, and Switzerland's quite a special place also for, for Chinese companies. I mean, because of the international organizations that are there, like the standardization bodies, and also because of the close economic ties and Switzerland's neutrality. So it has like quite a special role also in Chinese foreign politics. So I'm like looking from the ground up how this digital silk road is conceived in yeah in in practice on the one hand and also in in discourses around the digital silk road. Um if I think about one work that has really influenced my uh, influenced my work, I think it's it's the work of um China historian and and also anthropologist um, Francesca Bray, who has been working on technology in China and also on gender and technology and on rice fields and and on rice economies and really challenged the ways that, yeah, like our images of Western progress and capitalism and that this has to be the way to to go forward to develop and economies of scale. And she has shown that rice fields and and like rural economies develop really different that cannot be compared to these Western images of, yeah, of economies of scale. So, and also her yeah her explorations about technology I think are are really valuable. So I would really like recommend her work. Thanks so much, Lina. Thank you.
12: Hey, my name is Josh Freeman, Uh, I am a uh, specialist in 20th century uh, cultural history of China and particularly of the Uyghur community. Uh, I write a lot about uh, Uyghur literature and its significance in 20th century Uyghur history and uh, I'm particularly interested in poetry and what poetry does in history and what history does in poetry. I did my MA degree in Urimchi at uh, Xinjiang Normal University. I wrote my thesis on Uyghur avant garde poetry, and then I did my PhD back in the US at Harvard. Um, you know, I basically about yeah, Uyghur cultural history in the 20th century, um, you know, uh, Uyghur national culture in 20th century China. And yeah, I'm currently an assistant research fe- fellow at the Institute of Modern History at Academia Seneca in Taiwan. And uh, in addition to my historical work, I spend a lot of time translating poetry, uh, Uyghur poetry, into English. Um, I also recently finished translating uh, the memoir of Tayyar Isgil, Izgil, uh, a major Uyghur poet uh, that's out this August. Um, and my, current, my own current book project is called, or right now I'm calling it, The Poetry of Power, Uyghur National Culture in 20th Century China. So, and uh, Kaiser's asked me to give a recommendation um, I feel this is a time to make a plug for some Uyghur poetry. Uh, Uyghur poetry is awesome. I would absolutely recommend that you run to your nearest uh, Google uh, and just Google Roji Mamet, Mehmet, Ahmad Javosman, Tayramot Izgil, Tosun, Dilfumar Imin, any number of other names uh, 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 in the diaspora, some amazing poets as well, Abide Avas Nesrin, Uh, It's a very long list of names, but basically, or just Google Uyghur poetry, it's an unbelievable and ever-expanding body of work. Uh, Even with the catastrophe in the Uyghur region right now, uh, Uyghurs in the diaspora are continuing to write a tremendous amount of great poetry. Even Uyghurs in Xinjiang in the insane conditions there are managing to continue to write poetry. So that is my plug. That is my recommendation. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt.
13: I'm Susan McCarthy. I'm a professor of political science at Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, and I study Chinese politics, uh, in particular the politics of religion and ethnicity. Among other things, I'm really interested in the way in which uh, the state tries to control religion, manage religion, but also co-opt religion and religious ritual for a variety of political purposes, but also in the way the way in which this creates opportunities for religious people, religious organizations to do religion in unconventional ways, in ways that are not fully sanctioned by the regime. Um, So uh, most recently, I published a piece in the China Journal in the summer of 2022, called Liberating Party Animals, which is about uh, the Chinese government's efforts to uh, rein in the practice of fang sheng, which is a Buddhist and popular religious ritual uh, in which people uh, release animals it's about fang sheng literally means release of life and this is a really ancient practice and uh, for instance buddhists believe that when you release life release sake an animal in distress or a caged animal you gain merit which can speed your attainment of salvation and so in the in the reform era in the last couple decades as people have gotten wealthier they've started to engage in these rituals uh, and there's a whole industry, the kind of fangsheng fang industrial complex that has sprung up around fangsheng. Uh, and, uh, you know, so so there are all these organizations, little groups that are dedicated to the practice. And I got interested in this because I'm interested in religious charity and religious notions of the good. And for many Buddhists, this is charity par excellence because you're creating merit, which can help others. You can actually transfer it. Uh, but anyway, it's this practice has gotten somewhat out of control. It's hard to say how big it is, but people release hundreds of millions of organisms, you know, a a year, uh, millions of organisms, and they spend hundreds of millions of yuan uh, on the practice. And it often creates environmental problems. So people release non-native species or the animals have um, pathogens. And uh, there was also a case where some fangsheng practitioners released raccoon dogs and foxes uh, in Huairo, And uh, these were farm-raised animals, and the animals didn't know how to survive in the wild. They decimated the villagers' chickens and ended up turning up dead and whatnot. So, you know, so this can create real problems. There have been cases of people releasing poisonous snakes in parks, but not, you know, the authorities failing to tell people where these are released. Uh, But also, you know, rather than just suppress fangsheng, the regime is trying to transform how people think about it. So... Uh, it, the state has created a bunch of official fangsheng associations, like the Guangdong Fangsheng Association, and a series of other Guangdong associations. and And I argue that um, party state officials, you know, it's it's fairly typical for officials to inter intervene in religion and religious affairs, but they're not supposed to actually be doing religion with this, I say they're actually behaving as ritual specialists. So you have party people, including people with the uh, Discipline Inspection Commission, uh, officials who who lead the ceremonies and uh, kind of show people the appropriate, proper scientific way to release life. They they procure animals from state-regulated producers, and they've also melded this with um, China's efforts to repopulate uh, fish stocks in critical waterways. So so this has actually been incorporated into the long-term planning to, uh, you know, restore the ecology. And then also one thing that's interesting is that um, there are more and more cases I've found, on, and this is all based on research online, of uh, party branches. You know, uh, party branches have to do monthly party branch activity days, 当日活动活动. And so uh, these are to build esprit de corps and, you know, study the thought of Xi Jinping. And so increasingly, uh, some organizations, their party branches will carry out release, but they don't call it fang sheng, which has karmic you know, connotations. They call it uh, Zheng zhe fang liu, proliferation and release. But um, I was reading of some cases where there's actually this religious aspect to it uh, and they were talking about how this group, this party branch, they went and they toured a conservation site. Um, uh, and then they released, you know, hundreds of thousands of aquatic or, you know, like uh, aquatic germplasm, I think is the, the phrase. And then also fish fry, little hatchlings. And then they retook the party oaths in front of the bright red party banner. And and uh, according to the online uh, piece that I was reading every party every party member experienced a spiritual baptism so there is this like religious dimension to it even though it's not you know they claim it's not religion and I and I also think this is interesting too because party officials often say that well we're not doing religion this is just about you know uh, in in you know in, uh, encouraging the core socialist values and ecological civilization and uh, but to me it's interesting that they in saying that they don't believe in religion, so it's not religious. That's they're just restoring or revi- revitalizing China's traditional culture, but that's a very un-Chinese notion of religion. It's a very Protestant notion of religion. I, the idea of religion as belief or faith, as opposed to the Chinese notion of religion, which is religion as ritual. So anyway, so so this is the stuff I've been working on recently, and um and fortunately, most of the research I was able to do. Uh, just reading documents online and and WeChat groups of Buddhist um, fangsheng grassroots organizations and and then these party it's kind of interesting how much party branches post online of their their week their monthly activities so so yeah I've managed to kind of string this together and get something published.
2: How long is it going to be before there's a fangsheng theory of COVID origins?
13: Um, you know it's possible because you know like raccoon dogs we just. Yeah, in the Atlantic. And, and so, um, I mean, there has been a crackdown on the raising of exotic animals, the whole exotic animal industry. But, but you know, the the, the raccoon dogs that were released in Hawaii were raised in these, like, you know, off-label, unregulated farms. Um, so it's possible that there's a linkage between the those raccoon dogs and the, the possible raccoon dog or- origins. Who knows? Because a lot of fangsheng practitioners will go to markets to purchase animals and uh, which has all these perverse incentives, you know, so so people raise animals to sell them. Yeah, but um, so I guess actually, um, in terms of recommendation, one thing that led me to Fang Sheng, this is a book that was published ages ago, I can't even remember the date, but it's Joanna, Joanna Hanlon Smith, The Art of Doing Good. And it's it's about uh, the, the rise of charity during the Ming Dynasty. And she has a chapter on Uh, liberating animals. And so that's really how I kind of started thinking about this as a form of charity, uh, even though my work is super contemporary. So I found her um, The Art of Doing Good. Uh, I think it's colon charity in late Ming China. So that for me was really, um, really eye-opening.
14: My name is Brian DeMar. I am a professor of history at Tulane University. I've written three books. My first book, Mao's Cultural Army, was about drama troops in rural revolution. My second book, Land Wars, is the first and only English-language book that looks at land reform, the most pivotal moment of China's revolution uh, in English. And my new book is Tiger, Tyrant, Bandit, Businessman: Echoes of Counter-Revolution from New China, uh, in which uh, I explore four case files of counter-revolution In the rural county of Poyang, which is in northern Jiangxi, readers can expect to find prison breaks, frame jobs, bandit uprisings, secret service, uh, secret society uh, uh, uprisings as well. Um, And my recommendation for your listeners, the first one is going to be Fan Shen, which is the pivotal book for me that turned me on to uh, Chinese studies and Chinese history. William Hinton, that's right. Um, An American radical who was wandering the countryside in the late 40s and witnessed land reform firsthand. And my uh, other recommendation is going to be Shen, The God of Cookery. It's a movie by uh, Stephen Chow, which um, is just a a fun, fun movie that uh, is very, very rewatchable.
15: All right. Hey. So, my name is Juliet Liu. I'm an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And you want to know what I do, right? I do. My elevator pinch, but but longer. Um, yeah, so I, I studied Chinese rubber investments in Laos. That was what my dissertation was on. Um, and in the years I was doing it, from 2013 to 2020, um, the Belt and Road Initiative became really huge. So, I kind of joined... This podcast with Eric Mike Sturino, you know, um, and we we kind of try to highlight people that do research on the Belt and Road, but we we have a little bit of a belt bent towards highlighting people do that do things kind of like the way I do, which is trying to give a little bit more voice to people in the host countries, right? So I focus a lot on like interviewing Lao people, um, and people that will focus on specific sectors or or projects that give you a better bit of a sense of like that China is not a monolith. So a lot of panels here today actually have been, like, talking about breaking down the monolith of China, giving some agency to um, actors outside of China, especially actors and and voices and perspectives from the global south. So I think that's a cool kind of methodological conversation happening. So that's something I try to do, make sure I'm doing kind of on-the-ground research. Um, And, yeah, in the years since I was in grad school, I've started expanding partly just because partners on the ground, NGOs that I used to work with... um, they have started looking more at how rubber drives deforestation and how a couple of different actors, Chinese, um, downstream actors in Beijing, Vietnamese actors, actually, the Vietnam rubber group, and also tire companies. There's a bunch of different groups that are like creating sustainable supply chain initiatives. So since I work so close to like on-the-ground stuff, how do they get land access? I've been kind of trying to work with people that work more downstream to figure out, well, if you guys want less deforestation and i was looking at how land access was working those those two things have to be put together but they're coming at very different scales so trying to look at supply chains um in ways that would kind of link the people upstream that i study to the people downstream that are putting these initiatives in place and that's kind of bringing me in more conversation with people at ubc that do biodiversity stuff that want to do kind of drive biodiversity solutions and people that are in conversation more with like what policies change um, corporate activity on the ground in in resource extraction sectors like agriculture, but other others as well. So, I would say, yeah, looking at global China and looking at global China's environmental stuff. And if I still have time, which is
8: yeah, go for it.
15: Okay, so the last piece I would say of what that is bringing me into is um, a little bit of work with Tyler Harlan, which I, I think you met Tyler last night. So Tyler is really cool because he looked at um, he looks at. Hydropower, Chinese engagement in hydropower. He looks a lot at like how China trains hydropower engineers, but also just like does trainings for other folks. Um, so what we've been talking about is like, well, there's not a lot of in, like research in this middle level of how China engages with other other people through its investments. But then those investments, like the rubber plantations I look at and the hydropower projects he look at, um, those investments have a bunch of other a- activities attached to them that are kind of like development cooperation. There's like development projects in more traditional vein that we think of like building roads or or uh, donating something right but there's like a bunch of other stuff happening like trainings and people-to-people activity and um, workshops and research collaborations that we thought like no all of these are interconnected they shouldn't be studied separately so we've been trying to look at those kinds of development cooperation activities especially how environmental turn uh, yeah especially how like trying to green the Belt and Road has made all of those types of activities really important for like having an environmental edge to them. Um, And I guess what that's making us realize too is that China is taking its own environmental turns. So it's trying to pitch itself as like a global environmental leader. And Western countries, in a moment where there's so much polarization between the China and the U.S., even within all these like for example, the Indo-Pacific strategy policies that they're writing, they're saying we're going to compete with China, we're going to be tough on China, like eyes wide open, all this stuff, very confrontational. But then they always have an addendum of we're going to cooperate on environment. And so it's weird because yeah, because there's when it comes to like the the kind of polarization, it's almost like the environment is being carved out as this weird area in which everyone wants to say they're going to cooperate, even though they're going to be tough on each other on other in other areas. So I think it's a little bit of performative politicking, but I also think like Chinese NGOs are using that to keep that space open for themselves. Foreign NGOs are using that to keep the door open for themselves into China. And so I think, I don't know, it's like we can pretend... I want to study how they're they're keeping the environment apolitical in a strategic way because I actually think that that allows for a bunch of politicking to happen. Um, it's a little bit incohesive still, but um, but it's I don't know that's that's what I'm trying to do like with Tyler as like a bigger picture kind of letting us play around with okay what's happening at the higher scales.
2: Can you give me a recommendation of a book oh, or something right. that that uh, you've that's been you know, influential in your in your field uh, that you, you really like? And then maybe give me one that's sort of random that uh is about, you know, a baby book that you've read or a never, No it doesn't have to be a book, you know, a, a TV show or anything, yes, any, right. a children's book.
9: Um
15: well, I mean, okay, this is put a recommend of that you can cut out me thinking. i forgot about I always even on our podcast, Eric still does recommend he wants to do recommendations at the end. I always forget and I'm like, Oh, you go first, I can't. Um Maria, I think Maria's next book is going to be really good. Maria Repnikovas, it's not, like, the, she has the like, she has the soft power one coming out. I, I think that when she does the one on Ethiopia, it'll be even better. So I'm going to recommend... Yeah. Shit, Gryva Reed recently.
2: Actually did a little capsule interview with Maria already. I, well,
15: so, yeah, I know. So I won't, yeah, anyways.
2: No, that's cool. I mean, Maria's next book, does she have a working title for it yet? No. Okay.
15: She said that she just had a meeting with a with Duke and they the guy just like totally reformulated her framing for her so that's exciting that's cool that I don't know that she gets to do that um we're at five okay um recommendations I mean okay fine I'll just I'll recommend Maria's book because I love her and the soft power stuff I think is very cool and in the series that she did with CK um for Cambridge Nicholas and um even Frances Eny, Nicholas Loubere and even Franceschini have one on global China as method. So I think that they're having cool conversations about how to think of global China as like a, a way that opens up a bunch of other conversations about how the world is developing. So that I would recommend. And then um, you can watch on YouTube, uh, Samuel L. Jackson reading that this, it's a parody of kids, of a kid's book. It's called Go the F*** to Sleep. And it's like therapy for parents because it's like, this is what all books are. All books are just like bed books. And you really are just saying to your kid very quietly in a nice voice, like, go the f sleep. And Samuel L. Jackson makes it hilariously palatable. So that's what I would recommend.
2: Fantastic. Thanks.
0: I'm Sabina Knight. I teach literature at Smith College. My two main projects now include one on media of dissent and a second on fiction and poetry by non-Han writers in China and its borderlands. Last year, the magazine World Literature Today published my essay titled China's Minority Fiction. And the title was a challenge because Tibetans, Uyghurs, and Kazakhs don't consider themselves minority Chinese. But we needed a title for readers not necessarily familiar with China. For my AAS talk, I used Nan Han, Intimacy and Empire, non Han Fiction and Poetry. I began to read non-Han literature more after finishing my book, Chinese Literature, A Very Short Introduction. So I was seeking to promote Chinese literature in new ways. But I found very few sources in English. I had to rely on Chinese sources, and the work took years longer than I had imagined. It was also tricky to discuss these literatures as part of Chinese literature. The categories of China and Chinese don't work well for pre-20th century or non-Han cultures. Yet I posit that the written language has been the glue that connects Chinese people to a shared cultural past. Most of the essay presents stories and novels in terms of their documenting, their documenting of suppressed histories, their search for roots, and longings for cultural survival. My Media of Descent project began on Twitter. I was translating and explaining lines from memes, images, and videos such as namely's fragile, boli xin. The essay I'm writing now is on lying flat, tang ping, the rallying cry of youth who reject Xi Jinping's Chinese dream of national rejuvenation and especially the pressure to toil 12-hour days, 6 days a week, known as 996. And disillusionment is coalescing into a new non-cooperation movement with lying flat and sub-trends, such as Buddha chill for Xi and let it rot by Lan. In tweets, talks, and now the essay I'm writing, I introduce memes, manifestos, music videos, and other media to parse these movements. I'm also exploring precursor movements such as sang culture, sang literally a culture of mourning. And I'm especially fascinated by commonalities between these trends in China and those in Europe and beyond. I've been reading the ancient Greek cynics and French, Russian, and British work since at least the 1830s that praise idleness and even laziness. These include traditions of decadence, the beats, punks, slackers. I touch on the Great Resignation and the nap ministry in the U.S. And I ask why lying flat strikes such a chord with young people, with journalists, and with us, with me, <laughs> because I'm not very good at resting. I highly recommend a 2011 novel by the Taiwan writer Wu Mingyi The novel's called The Man with the Compound Eyes, Fu Yen Ren, and Daryl Stark did a fantastic lyrical translation. The novel combines science with magic realism. There's a giant trash vortex that washes up in a hurricane. Umingi is fictionalizing the all too real Great Pacific garbage patch. The characters' personal tragedies are interwoven with environmental doom, most of it man-made, like the trash vortex. But, the, but nature has agency, too. The ocean expresses its wrath through the hurricane and rising sea levels that flood the protagonist's home. And a mountain seems to reject the engineers drilling a highway tunnel by flooding the project. A German engineer wonders if their team should have gone around the mountain and if what they thought was a scientific judgment was more a lifestyle choice. Yet the novel can be read as hopeful, too. It offers artful insights into distinct types of memory, dwelling and homelessness, loneliness, vulnerability. Thank you so much for speaking with me.